0: Okay, friends, today we are continuing in our sermon series through the book of Acts. We're currently in chapter 21, and if you remember, just before this, before this part of our story that we're about to read, the Apostle Paul, who's kind of like the guy God mainly used to spread the gospel and plant churches all throughout the story of the book of Acts, is just getting back home to Jerusalem after having done… This mission trip for the past at least two years in Ephesus and in different areas like that, right? If you've been with us in the series, that's what we've learned, okay? So Paul now is back home from planning churches, from preaching the gospel outside of Jerusalem, mainly with the Gentile people who are the non Jewish people. It's an important detail for us to remember later, okay? He's back home after this long life risking trip, right? Where he got rioted against and almost killed a few times. He's back home and it was in this community where his friends were at and when his, where his church community were, was at, and put yourself in his shoes, you're back home after a long mission trip, a life-risking one, for the gospel. What do you expect to experience? Well, I think if you're like me, you would expect to be welcomed and embraced with an open arms and, 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 and to be uh, uh, encouraged, perhaps, for all that you've done, appreciated, But as we read in our passage today, that is far from what Paul will receive. When he got back home, he was instead met with tons of unfair criticism and judgment from his fellow church members, from his fellow Christians. And that's what this passage is about. It's about how sometimes your church family will disappoint you and underappreciate you. And it's really tempting to ask the question at this point, you know, why does God have to include all these negative parts of church life in the Bible? This isn't the first one, right? It's, a few of them have been communicated in the book of Acts too. Why not just talk about the good parts, you know, the positive parts, about being a part of a church community? Well, because that won't work. Just talking about the good parts won't work. Your fake radar will immediately turn on, and what you read on paper won't settle with your day-to-day, everyday experiences. It won't work. Because guess what? Oftentimes your church community can be disappointing and discouraging. And God's not scared about being brutally honest about that. Okay? And if you're here today and you're a Christian, I believe this passage might actually encourage you. Because you'll see that you're not the only one who struggles with Christian relationships. Okay, it's happened since the first and second century with Paul and the early apostles in their day. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're, you're here maybe because a friend invited you and you kind of just want to get to know what Christianity is all about, you want to explore the Bible more, I believe this passage can be helpful for you as well as you see the essence and the point of what Christianity is all about, and as you see the flaws of Christians who are sinners in desperate need of a Savior just like you. All right, let's get into it. This is the Word of God, taken from Acts chapter 21, verse 17 to 26. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, you see, brother, so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter without, with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men… And the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification will be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Thus says the Lord. Okay, so what we see here is that Paul came home to a very irritable and volatile Christian community who had a lot of unfair criticisms toward him. Now, Why does God let things like this happen? Why does He allow Christian communities to at times be irritable and volatile and sensitive like this? Okay, well, there's at least three reasons we see in the passage. God allows that to happen, one, to reveal our presumptions, two, to build up our leaders, and three, to refine our character to reveal our presumptions, to build up our leaders, and to refine our character, right? Let's start at the first point. God allows Christian relationships to be volatile oftentimes, or any relationship to be volatile, to reveal our presumptions. Where do we see that? All right. So, when Paul first arrived home, we read in verse 1 earlier that everything started off well, okay? The community welcomed him. James and the leaders of the early church were celebrating all that God did through Paul, it says. But unfortunately, in the middle of this encouraging meeting, James had to bring up an issue to Paul's attention about some complaints that the Jewish Christians in their community had about Paul. Okay, look at the middle of verse 20. And they said to him, You see, brothers, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. So these are Jewish believers, they're all zealous for the law and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles out there to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. Okay, let me explain the drama here, all right? So, Paul was going around in this two-year mission trip, at least, where? To Gentile places, right? To places that not, don't have many Jewish people in it, uh, Ephesus and different things, places like that. And apparently… As he was preaching to a a majority Gentile crowd, or crowds, amongst the Gentile crowds, verse 21 says, so every now and then, you know, in the Gentile crowd, there'll be a few Jewish Christians there. And they, these Jewish Christians among the Gentile crowd, heard Paul preaching to the crowd and felt like Paul was attacking them. Paul was attacking the Jewish Christians. Why? What happened? Well, I have to first briefly remind us about the ongoing tension that existed between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, the non-Jewish Christians, back in the day, or else none of this will make sense, okay? So, stick with me. If you remember, we studied a few months ago in Acts chapter 15, right, six chapters before this, that there was an argument that happened between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Do you guys remember what the issue was about? Circumcision, right? So, the Jewish Christians… Or some of them were telling the Gentile Christians that they needed to get circumcised like the Jewish Christians if they want to get saved. So receiving Christ wasn't enough. It was receiving Christ plus circumcision. That's how you get like really, really forgiven and really saved. And Paul in Acts chapter 16, six chapters ago, got all the church leaders together to kind of talk about this issue. And everyone decided "Uh, that does not sound right. (laughs) Based on the Old Testament and based on what Jesus said in the New Testament and based on what happened on the cross, forgiveness of sins is received only through Christ alone, not Christ plus something else, right? Everyone agreed on that. It was consensus. So, that's what happened a few years ago. And Paul, okay, back to our time today, Paul was preaching to a primarily Gentile crowd in this two-year mission trip. What would he emphasize? of course he would emphasize that, hey, look, don't worry, you don't have to get circumcised to be saved. We talked about this six chapters ago, and we all agreed you're saved through Christ alone. Don't worry about getting circumcised. But see, the Jewish Christians that were among the Gentile majority crowd heard Paul differently. You see what I'm trying to say? They went back to Jerusalem, to the headquarters, right, and said this, guys, you will never believe what Paul said. Paul has been telling Jewish Christians everywhere to forsake Moses. That's what verse 21 literally says, to forsake Moses, meaning they're saying or they heard that Paul's been telling Jewish Christians everywhere around the world to disobey everything Moses said, which is like the first five books of the Old Testament, including the Ten Commandments, everything. And it's like, wait, what? How did you get, you know, how did Paul get from telling Gentile Christians that they don't need to be circumcised to be saved? How did that get to he's telling Jewish Christians to disobey the first five books of the Old Testament? That's, that's, that's a big leap to make, you know, from what he actually said to what they heard him say. Let's give this leap a name. Let's call it a loaded leap. Why do I say it's loaded? Because the reason these Jewish Christians were able to make that leap from what Paul actually said to what they heard him say is due to a loaded presumption they already had about who Paul is. At some point in the past, something happened between them and Paul to where Paul was already boxed in by these Jewish Christians as a hater of circumcised people. That's his caricature, okay? What happened in the past? Well, the big church council we just talked about in Acts chapter 15, where Paul got all the leaders together to talk about circumcision, and everyone decided that if you're not Jewish, you don't need to get circumcised to be saved, okay? The fullness of salvation is achieved and received through Christ alone and what He did on the cross, not plus anything else. And ever since that happened, Paul has been caricatured by many Jewish Christians in the day as a hater of circumcised people, and since then, everything Paul said has been filtered through those lenses. It's a loaded leap. And look, before we judge these Jewish Christians for doing this, is this not often the cause of a lot of our church conflicts as well, or just conflicts in general? someone hurts us in the past, and it's understandable that we want to protect ourselves from any future hurt this person could do, right? So, what do we do? Well, like the Jewish Christians here, we put our guard up, and we play it safe. And we caricature this person as a dangerous person or as a fill-in-the-blank. And we interpret everything they do and say through those lenses because we want to avoid being surprised from any potential future hurt. And look, sometimes that strategy is very helpful. It's a good skill to have if it's applied to somebody who's actually abusive. <laughs> but the thing is, like the Jewish Christians here, our radar, our radar isn't always the most accurate. Oftentimes, we end up doing that to people who don't deserve it, or perhaps to people who don't deserve it as much as we dish it to them. So you know, someone in the past made an immature mistake or made a bad decision, they're dealing with their own stuff, and they somehow hurt us unintentionally, and we say, all right, I see how it is, you know, you are a dangerous person, stamped box locked. And after that, like the Jewish Christians here, it's very easy for us to interpret everything they say and do with loaded leaps. Paul said, look, you don't need to get circumcised if you're not a Jewish person to be saved. They heard, Paul hates us. <laughs> and he's telling us to abandon the Old Testament. You won't catch me off guard again, Paul. I got you unlocked this time. Anxiety, loaded leaps. And Paul's like, I didn't say that at all that's not what I said. Why did you hear that? And people do this to us too, don't they? They interpret what we say with loaded leaps. Have you ever experienced being caricatured as a particular kind of person by maybe a group of people or maybe by your family members? And it's like everything you do or say is always interpreted through those lenses. Like there's no way out. I have, and I've done it to others too. I'm convinced that a lot of our relationship issues, even in the church, isn't actually caused by what someone said or did. I think more of it is actually caused by our unawareness of our own loaded leaps in which we interpret what other people say or do through all the time. It's there. It exists. And look, what are we at right now, CCC? a couple hundred members? You don't think there's tons of loaded leaps jumping around all over us? There's a lot of them, quite a few probably. And here might be a healthy exercise for us all to do, to ask ourselves, who might I have loaded leaps toward? Who might I have caricatured and placed in a box and view everything they say and do just through those lenses to protect myself from future hurt. But, Tez, you don't know what they've done to me. Well, okay, you're right. I don't. And there might be a percentage of your assumption that's true about this person. But you know what humility does? Humility gives us the capacity to question our own compass. Humility gives us the capacity to bring it before the Lord, and that's all I'm asking us to do. I'm not asking you to abandon those presumptions completely. Some of them may be right, but just double-check (laughs) them. Bring them to the Lord and see, ask Him, which part about my presumptions is accurate and which which one is off. And that's what the church needs to do. The church needs people who have the capacity to do that, to handle these issues, which is what James and the early church leaders actually did here in the rest of the passage okay, leads us to our second point. God allows the church to experience all kinds of relational issues, one, to reveal our presumptions that we have, have toward one another, and two, to build up the leaders in the church. So, let's continue the passage. James and the early church leaders in verses 22 to 25 displayed amazing leadership to handle the situation, okay? We can, and we can learn from this. How? Well, first of all, they planned ahead. Look at verse 22. They met with Paul, and they said, what is to be done? They, the Jewish Christians, will certainly hear that you have come. So, they knew before Paul arrived that this is going to be an issue. They're going to hear about it. It's going to be an issue. They preempted the problem, number one. Can we do that? Two, they already had a solution in place. Look at verses 23 to 24. James said, do therefore what we tell you, they had a plan already before the meeting even happened. You see how proactive this was? What's the plan? We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that you actually respect the Jewish custom. Okay, in the world's going on here, well, what they did here is they told Paul to do something called the Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow is a purification practice that the Jews would do back then when they came back home from traveling in foreign, non-Jewish lands, because maybe during their travels, you know, they might have been exposed to, quote-unquote, uncleanliness. Who knows? They might have had to eat meat that wasn't kosher, or maybe they accidentally touched a dead animal, or maybe they interacted with somebody who had leprosy right? These are all the kinds of things that Jewish people thought would make somebody unclean. So, the Jews believe that if you want to come back home, we can't, we can't uh, infect our holy land with, you know, all this impurities from out there, so you've got to purify yourself, okay, in order to enter the land, enter the temple. And what, what do you have to do for the Nazarite vow? It included a few things. This is another important detail. You have to sacrifice one male lamb, sacrifice one female lamb, sacrifice one ram you got to buy a bowl of wheat cereal, don't ask, and give it to the church, and you got to buy a drink offering to give it to the, temp- uh, to the temple, I mean, and a drink offering to give the temple as well. Oh, and you got to shave your head after all that, verse 24. That's kind of the final, like, you know, purification practice. So, apparently, there are four other travelers who just got back to Jerusalem, and James said, look, we have four other people that's going through this as well, and James told Paul, look, to make your point clear that you respect the Jewish custom, do the Nazarite vow, just do it, it's okay, buy all the lambs, rams, wheat cereals for you and for these four people as well, at your expense, he said, and then perform it. (laughs) Can you believe that? You know how expensive that would be? Isn't that so unfair that Paul would have to bend over backwards and do all of that for people who slandered him behind his back? It is so unfair, which leads us to the third trait of the church leaders back then, and this is perhaps the hardest one to do. They didn't only preempt the problem. They didn't only have a, a proactive with the solution, but the type of solution they came up with placed the weight of burden upon themselves and not upon the Jewish Christians. It was totally unfair that Paul had to do all this to them, but he did. Why? Because he's the leader. See, in most organizations, the lower you are in the leadership ladder, the more you gotta serve, and the more you have to endure injustice. God's telling us today, through this passage, that in the church, it's the opposite. In his kingdom, it's upside down. It's an upside down kingdom, as a preacher once said. In the church, The higher up you are in the leadership ladder, the more you gotta serve, and the more injustice you gotta be willing to endure. That's what Paul did here, because it's an upside down kingdom. Think about all the ways Jesus described his kingdom in the Bible. Everything's upside down, isn't it? It's weird. Think about it again. The first is last, and the last is first. That's weird. The weak is called strong and the strong is called weak. That's... The self-sufficient is called poor, and the poor in spirit is called rich. The king washes the feet of the servants, and the servants are welcome to share in the king's glory. Everything is upside down. In the church, the higher you are in the leadership ladder, The more you're called to serve and the more injustice you're called to endure. They preempted the issue. They came up with a solution. They took the burden of weight upon themselves to solve it. And lastly, they took into account potential misunderstanding. So James and the leaders knew that if the Gentile Christians in the area saw Paul bending over backwards for the Jewish Christians, the Gentile Christians might start to feel nervous and think, Hold on a second. Is Paul changing his mind with this whole circumcision thing? Do I have to get circumcised now? They knew that might happen. So look what they did in the middle of verse 25. James said, We've already sent out a letter to the Gentiles. Again, very proactive. <laughs> We've already sent out a letter to the Gentiles telling them that, look, we haven't changed our minds about circumcision. Whatever we agreed back then in Acts chapter 15, it stayed the same, okay? All you need to do to show respect to the Jewish Christians is, verse 25, to abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. That's it. Just do that, you know, give in to that so that they don't feel too disrespected. But don't worry, our stance on circumcision has not changed and will never change. You are saved through Christ alone, and we will die on that hill. They preempted the problem, they came up with a solution, they placed the weight of burden upon themselves, and they fixed a potential misunderstanding. You see that? Look, CCC, if we want to become a church community that can handle relational fires well, we got to get to a point where we can do all that the early church leaders here did. We got to get there. Wait, but, but they're leaders, Right? I'm just a member at CCC. I thought you said earlier that the weight of burden should fall on the leaders of the church. Well, I guess this is me calling you to lead. (laughs) Leadership isn't about position. It's about ownership. Is this your church? Do you care about her? If you do, then one of the best ways to protect it is to tell God about that one person you're constantly frustrated with, or those 10 people you're constantly frustrated with, and ask Him to reveal to you which parts of your instincts are accurate and which parts of your instincts are actually self-defensive loaded leaps. And then do what the leaders did here, preempt future issues that might come up with this person, prepare a solution, a solution that puts the burden of weight on you, not on them, and handle potential misunderstandings that might arise. Friends, we're at, we're at a point where the elders and deacons and staff can't put out every relational fire out there. You got to do it yourself. Why? One, it's impossible to do with the church this side, and two, it'll grow you like crazy trying to handle relational issues will grow you like crazy, which moves us to our third point. God allows His church to sometimes experience volatile relationships, one, to reveal our presumptions, two, to build up our leaders, and lastly, to refine our character. So, as this part of the story comes to a close, the passage moves away from James and back on Paul. So, let's do that. Let's place ourselves in Paul's shoes now, okay? So, you're tired, you're exhausted, you just got back home from a two year long mission trip where you risked your life <laughs> for the gospel mission and for the church, only to come back to this church who's asking you to bend over backwards and appease the ego of a bunch of people who took your words out of context uncharitably and gossip behind your back. What would you do in that situation? I'll tell you what I'll do. Actually, I won't because I might get fired. It's hard to do that. What did Paul do? Look at verse 26. Then Paul took the four men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented to each one of them. (laughs) Aside from Jesus climbing on a cross... This might be the most insane displays of humility I've seen in the Bible. Really put yourself in Paul's shoes. When he got home, he had to use his own money (laughs) to buy materials of the Nazarite vow, not only for himself, but for other people. That's five male lambs, five female lambs, five rams, five packages of wheat cereal, five drink offerings and he was a tent maker. He didn't have much money. And then after all that, he had to go and shave his head completely bald. Now, I'm guessing this wasn't a fresh clean like we get today in barbershops. So, he gets a choppy haircut, and the middle of verse 26, it says, he had to walk into temple and give notice to these legalistic, prideful Jewish Christians when the days of purification would be fulfilled and present the offering to each one of them. So, after all of this, Paul had to report to them. <laughs> I don't know, that's what got me, that's what got me. You had to report to them? Like, tell them, okay, here's my offering, you know, and here's where I'll do the Nazarite vow, and I'll report back to you guys when it's all done. So I'm studying this passage, and at this point, I'm like pulling my hair out, going, Paul, <laughs> that's enough. There's a, I, I understand humility, but there's a limit to these things, right? it's enough. Like, stand up for yourself. Show some strength. But it's exactly at this point as well where I and the other readers of this passage were called to remember what strength looks like in an upside-down kingdom. Paul would have responded, oh, you think this is me being weak, You think this is me being not powerful. Tez, that means your definition of strength is still very much defined by the world. Because my definition of strength hung on a cross for me. Do you realize how many presumptuous loaded leaps Jesus had to endure for you and me? From the day he was born the day He died on that cross. On that cross, where we saw the mightiest being in the universe get swallowed up whole by injustice, done by the hands of people who are much, much weaker than Him. Do you know how much strength it takes to say, I can call up a legion of angels like that, but I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. He didn't say a word like a lamb silent, He placed the weight of burden, the punishment that you and I deserve upon Himself. That's strength. And here's my question for us, CCC, are we strong? Are we strong by the definition of an upside-down kingdom? Look, the Bible says that the Father will discipline the children that He loves. So there will be plenty of times where He will place us in these kinds of situations because He loves us, because He wants to reveal our presumptions. He wants us to see it. He wants to grow as leaders, and He wants to refine our character through His furnace that will chisel away all that ego that none of us are convinced we have. A coach once said to me in the gym, you want to get stronger, pick up something heavy. The relational issues that God places your way, Christian, whether in CCC or in your church home, wherever that may be, or in your friend group or families, it may feel heavy and even at times unbearable. But you gotta remember, it will never crush you. It will never be so heavy to where God will crush you. Why not? Because he's already placed all the burden of our sins that we're supposed to carry upon Jesus and crushed him in our place. It'll never crush you. And when it gets heavy, look upon that cross, remember your worth, and remember the worth of the person that annoys you. (laughs) And that's what will keep you going because that's what kept Paul going. He knew he was pure because of Christ. Let's pray. Father, your word says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted represent and live in this upside-down kingdom in the way that You've intended us to. Help us know that up is down and down is up, and let that Father give us the strength as we behold upon that embodied upon the cross to lay down our egos and our pride, have the humility to question our compass, and bring up to You our presumptions and solve relational issues in the way that the early church did, that Paul did, and that we are called to do as well. Help us today, Father. Let Your church continue to be one. Let us continue to be united through the furnace that You may bring us through. But through the power of the gospel, we know that it will only be for our good and refinement. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.